If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8 with me this morning, a copy of God's Word. We're going to be uh, there this morning. My name is Rick Pickerell. I'm the senior pastor here at Mount Hope. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, glad you're here this morning. Glad you're joining us in worship, and uh, we thank you for being here with us today. Uh, one of the things I know uh, Pastor Brian mentioning the Right Now Media, one other aspect of that um, is I think if we have... Uh, 30% of our congregations sign up. Right now, you have to send it, get an email invitation. But I think uh, if we get 30% of our people to at least check it out, then they'll give us a URL, and we can just kind of cut and paste that to our website and stuff and, and be able to get access even easier. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, it is a pretty good resource. There's a lot of stuff there, a lot of content there that's uh, worth your time, worthwhile to, uh, to check out. So right now, media. Um, my name, as I mentioned, is Rick Piccarello, and if you can't tell from that alone, or my hands like this, I will tell you that I am Italian. Um, and uh, my uh, grandparents uh, were born here. My great-grandparents uh, came over, at least on my father's side, from Italy. And one of the things that, as an Italian, I'm a little disappointed as, is even though I am Italian, I don't speak Italian. Some of you uh, know one, two, three, well, I guess all of you know one, but two, three, four languages, five. Uh, I've done this before, but I'm curious this morning, uh, who would be so brave, speaks the most languages in our congregation? Anyone speak five or more? Five or more languages? Do we have anybody that speaks five or more? We've got Sunita. Anyone more than that? Five? Five languages. You're the most this morning, Sunita. That's impressive. Uh, I speak one, uh, barely. Um, but I, uh, I, I wish they had passed it on. But my, they grew up in a time, what I learned was a little bit more, my great-grandparents when they came over and my grandparents when they were growing up here, my understanding is in that time, it wasn't necessarily what you wanted to do to pass on your language necessarily. You were oftentimes wanting to fit into the American culture, not stand out from the American culture. You didn't necessarily want to be known as Italian or Irish or what, you know, the, uh, another, that you came from somewhere else. You wanted to be accepted here. And so many times uh, the language wasn't passed on. I think that's a little different than the world we live in now. Now it's more celebrated. Now it's more, you know, you want to pass that on, have that heritage preserved. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was a little different. So it didn't get passed on to my parents and it didn't get passed on to me. But even though it didn't, there was still at times when I was around my grandparents or my parents, what I believe were Italian words thrown around. I don't know for sure, I don't know if they know for sure if there were actual Italian words that got thrown around, but if from time to time there was a word spoken that I assume came from the Italian language in some sort, uh, and, uh, and sometimes that would happen. So one thing my grandmother would say to me, uh, would say to us grandkids when we were acting up, is she would say, do you want masadas? If that is a bad Italian word, forgive me, I have no idea if it means what she told me it means. So you may not want to Google translate it. I don't know what it means. But she said, do you want masadas? And we're kids, and we're like, yeah, we want whatever's coming to us. 
She told us afterwards that that meant a spanking. <laughs> and, but I, so I don't know if that's actually what it meant. That's what it meant to her. It probably is. Um, but sometimes, uh, I say that to say this, sometimes uh, getting what you want is not really what you want. And sometimes saying yes to wanting masadas is not really what you want. And sometimes in life, getting what you want is not really what you want. And we come to a passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as we're going through our series, Unexpected, where there is an unexpected answer to a request. And even though the people of God and the people of Israel were making this request, and even though God answered it, sometimes getting what you want is not what you want. Sometimes it's true that God's greatest gifts may be unanswered prayers. Sometimes getting what you want is not what you want. The people of Israel had found themselves in a place before this um, where God had been leading them through uh, people called judges. Uh, there were prophets and there were priests, uh, all these different offices, but there, were no, there was no king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, there comes a shift, not only in the book of 1 Samuel, not only in the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but really in all of, of, of history of God's people. This shift comes in 1 Samuel chapter 8, because previous to this time, they had no king, and now they come asking for a king. And so this is an incredible pivot point, not only in this book, but in the entire history of God's people. But sometimes getting what you want is not always what you want. They came asking for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. It says this, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. That's a good start, right? Let's start. You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Incredible turning point in this book and in the history of God's people. They come to Samuel, who had been leading them by this time for many years, and he had grown old, and his sons did not serve God the way Samuel did. It's sometimes true that good, godly uh, men and women, good, godly parents, their children don't always follow in their ways, and it was certainly true in Samuel's case. From everything we can tell about Samuel, he was a good, godly man who followed God with his whole heart, but his children did not. And so the people come, and they come asking Samuel. They said, look, you're old, and your kids don't serve God. So appoint for us a king. And then they add, just like all the other nations have. We'll find out it's a little disingenuous that they're asking for a king because when you think about it, if you think about their argument, a king by its very definition is a, is, creates a system where power is passed on through families and through generations. You know, that's, that's what a king does. When a king dies, his son becomes king next. 
So it's kind of ironic that they're saying, Samuel, your sons don't serve God. Now appoint us a king who will have a succession plan of children after him. So it's, it's a little disingenuous what they're asking. And we had a little light into why they're asking this when they say, so we can be like other nations. It's not just because your children don't serve God. There's a little bit of an ulterior motive there. But sometimes getting what you want is not what you want. A couple verses later, Samuel takes this request to the Lord, and he's heartbroken by it because he feels the people have rejected him. And God says to Samuel, you know, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. But the unexpected thing is God is going to give them the answer to their prayer or their request The unexpected thing is even though they're asking for something that's not good for them, even though they're asking for something that rejects God, God is going to give them what they're asking for, but sometimes getting what you want is not what you want. So why is it that we ask for things that in the big picture and in the long run are really not good for us? Why is it that we ask for things and we continue to ask for things from God that may not be the best thing for us, but yet we ask anyway? We come to God anyway. I don't know if you've found yourself in that situation, but I have at times where I've asked God for something, and it's only much later having a larger perspective that I can say, oh, thank God you did not give me what I wanted at that moment. But why can't we have that perspective right up front? Why do we ask for things that in the big picture, why do we want things that in the long run are not really going to give us what we want. Well, I think there are at least two reasons, and they're very present in the words of the people of Israel at the moment. One, they say, so that we can be like other nations. There's an attractiveness to being like other people. There's something about them that they wanted to be like the people around them. And there's a thing, there's something that makes life a little easier when there's a little less friction between maybe us and the people around us. I mean, you remember friction from, from your uh, classes, right, in, in uh, science in school, right? I put some pictures of some aspects of friction, right? Sometimes you're trying to eliminate friction, right? You're, you're sledding down a hill. You're an international speed skater. You know, these people do everything they can to eliminate as much friction as possible. Sometimes you're trying to control friction. If you've ever been to a curling match, believe it or not, I have. Um, It's quite interesting, actually. And uh, if you've ever been to a curling match, they're trying to control friction, right? You want a certain amount. They get those brooms sweep in the front where they're trying to eliminate some friction, and then they kind of try and gauge it so it lands in the right spot. And then sometimes you're trying to utilize the benefits of friction. You want to stop a car on on a wet street, or you want to start a fire and you don't have any matches, You're trying to utilize some of the benefits of friction. Sometimes you're trying to eliminate it. Sometimes it's uh, there and you're trying to control it. And other times uh, uh, you're reaping the benefits of it. But in life and in our relationships, we often think that the best thing is to eliminate friction as much as possible. And so sometimes we go along just to get along. 
Sometimes we'll agree just so we don't have to disagree. And sometimes we just try and eliminate friction in every aspect of our life. And I think this is what the people of God, this is what the people of Israel were trying to do. They were saying, look, we just want to be like other nations. Because how hard would it have been when, you know, you're out, you know, you're just out on a normal day. And some, oh, yeah, what's the name of your king? God. Yahweh. Oh, where does he live? In heaven. Uh, oh, okay, how do you hear from him? Well, the prophet speaks. and I mean, it had to be just hard to explain because they were so different from the other people around them. Everyone else around them could say, oh, this is where our king lives. This is, his, this is his throne. This is his palace. Here he is. You can meet him. This is our king. But the people of Israel didn't have that. And so they said, we want to be like other nations, we want to remove the distinctiveness that God has given to us. We want to be like everyone else. I think that temptation confronts everyone who chooses to follow God. Because when you choose to follow God, there is always a measure of faith involved. You are choosing to worship and to follow a God you cannot see and can be difficult to hear from at times, or at least hear from the way you'd like to hear from. And there is a measure of faith involved in that. And so, you're talking to someone that doesn't know the Lord, and you're trying to share, and you're trying to share about this God you cannot see, but you know that you know that you know exists, and you, and you love him, and you worship him, and your whole life is built around God that you cannot see, and a voice that is sometimes hard to hear. And you're trying to explain this, and you say, and sometimes, for some people, it's just easier just to be like everyone else. It's just easier to eliminate friction. And wouldn't it be easier just to live for the things of this world and to live holy for this world instead of living for a holy God? And I think that's what the people of Israel were. And sometimes that's why we ask for things that aren't necessarily good for us because we want and, or we end up desiring to serve things that are more tangible, things that we can see, things that we, you know, we can see when the bank account goes up. We feel a little more security maybe when those numbers go up instead of placing our security in the God we cannot see, right? We, we know when we're doing well at work and it feels good to do well at work and, and all of a sudden our allegiance may start shifting, towards confidence in our work and our place of work and our place of employment and our identity might get found there because we can see that. We can feel that. We know what's going on. Instead of in the God we cannot see who says he gives us our identity. So we sometimes may be tempted to shift our grades in school, the affirmation you get as a student. You can get into this college and that college, and all of a sudden you start building your life around that track and not so much around the God you cannot see because it's easier to live like the people around us at times. It's easier to live for those things you can see and sometimes harder to live for those things you cannot see. And so this is the temptation that came to the people of God. It's the temptation that still comes to us. But the truth is, even Jesus said, you should be in the world and not of the world. 
right? We live in this world. We're a part of it. We have relationships. We have friends. We have obligations to love and share the grace of God. We are to be in the world and not of the world. The trouble is when you try and be like the world, it's hard not to be of the world. And this is where the people of Israel were saying, we want to be like other nations. We want to be like them. And in doing so, in many ways, they were saying, we don't want to be like God. We would rather be like other people than like the Lord. Because God said, be holy as I am holy. The word holy means distinct, different, set apart. So God was saying, be distinct, be different, be set apart. And they were saying, ah, we would just kind of like to be like everyone else. We would kind of like to be liked. And we just kind of want to be like everyone else. And so sometimes the reason we ask for things that may not in the long run be good for us is because it just feels easier in the short term to be like everyone else. And that's, I believe, part of what the people of Israel were doing at times. The second reason that they wanted a king or the second reason I think that we sometimes ask for things that may not be good for us uh, is because they wanted a king that would make them successful in this world, that would make them successful. They wanted a military leader. If you jump down to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 20, 19 and 20, it says this, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. We want someone who will make us militarily successful. We want someone who's going to go and fight our battles. Now they had that in the Lord. Many times God had gone out before them and fought their battles. But they want a king who's going to, they want a person. They want a tangible person that's going to go out and do this and fight our battles. What they were saying, we just want, we want someone who's successful on the military. We want to point to them. We want to pin medals on them. We want a king who will go out and fight our battles. We want someone who will make us successful and our people successful. And what... The reality is that sometimes we do, I think we do the same thing. We want a God who will make us successful. Instead of a God for us to worship, I think sometimes Christians aren't interested in a God. They're more interested in a genie in a bottle. You know, we want a God who will do this for us, give us this job, give us this position, give us that possession, give us this power, give us that influence. Instead of looking and saying, that we have a God that we are to worship. Sometimes we want a God who will do everything that we ask of him. And so we ask for things that maybe aren't good for us in the short term, or we make decisions that maybe aren't good for us in the short term, but we do it because we just want to be successful in this world. And I think sometimes we make the same decisions that the people of Israel were making. We ask with the wrong motives. We ask with the wrong motives, even when we're asking for a good thing. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to flip over to James chapter 4 with me. I don't have the verse up on the screen, uh, but James chapter 4, he speaks to this very thing. James chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, you want something, but you don't get it. 
said, you even kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this was the problem with the people of Israel asking for a king. You know, it wasn't bad for them to have a king. If you go back to Genesis and God's promise to Abraham, God promised Abraham that kings would come through his line. Later on, God promised Jacob that kings would come through his line. Deuteronomy chapter 17 speaks, God speaks to it and he says, when you come into the land, if you want a king, this is the kind of king you should have. And it goes on and lays out the qualities of a godly king. And one of them I think is interesting is that he should write his own copy of God's word and have that with him constantly. But this wasn't the kind of king they were asking for. Having a king wasn't a bad thing. It was how they were asking and why they were asking for it. God said, you might want a king when you go into the land, but make sure he's a godly king. But they wanted a king to be like other people and to go fight their battles for them. I think it's interesting that what God had promised was not his plan right now. And other sometimes in our lives when we go to God and we say, oh, this is so good. Of course you're going to want this for me. Of course you want to give, give me this possession. Of course you want to give me this healing. Of course you want to give me this money. Of course you want to give me this blessing. Of course, because this is the good God that you are. But if we're asking with motives that glorify ourselves, that are to spend it on ourselves instead of pushing that back and glorifying God, then we're asking with the wrong motives. And God says, sometimes you ask and you don't receive because the motives you're coming with are just selfish. And that doesn't work that way. And so God says, you know, to the people of Israel, it's not bad for them to have a king, but the way they were asking and the king they were asking for was not in his plan. It wasn't just that they were rejecting God. They were rejecting God's whole idea of leadership. Because even if they had a king, he was to serve under God's direction, but that wasn't what they were asking for. They were just asking for a military leader so that they could be like other nations. What Samuel tells them is there's a cost to serving a lesser king than God. And it's true. In this world, if we replace God and put something else in his place, anything, anything in this world, any person, any possession, any position, we put that in God's place, there's always a cost to it. And Samuel said, there is a cost to serving an earthly king and a lesser king. And he shares that with him in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel tells them what the cost is in serving a lesser king. And he said this, and I want you to, as you listen to this, Listen to all the words, listen to all the times that the word take is used. This is what Samuel says a king will do. Beginning in verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take 
your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel says, you are welcome to serve a lesser king, an earthly king, but know what you are asking for. This is a king who will take, 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 take from you. He was merely laying out what was true in natural law of things. There's no king on earth who has any power without taking something from people, others. There's no, there's no king. The only power any king has has either been given to him by the consent of the governed or it has been taken by force, but his only resources, his only power, his only people, his only money comes from the people that he rules over. Samuel was uh, voicing, uh, in a sense, what would be comically voiced many years later in an old television sitcom called The Honeymooners. I don't know if some of you a little older remember The Honeymooners. It was a character in there named Ralph Cramden and his wife Alice played by and Ralph was played by Jackie Gleason and sometimes when uh, Ralph would get so upset at his wife he would just want to lay down the law and say how it is in this house you might remember what he said if you've ever seen it he said look I'm the king and you're nothing <laughs> to which Alice would quickly reply then you are the king of nothing The only power a king has is drawn from the people he rules over. If you've got no people that you're ruling over, you have no power. And all Samuel is saying is, look, if you're asking for a king, guess where he's going to get his troops to win these battles? Guess where he's going to get his money? Guess where he's going to get his cattle? Guess where this is all going to come from you. He's going to take it from you. And they said, no, we want a king. And the unexpected answer is that God gives them a king. He gives them what they ask for. And they will find many years later when a man named Solomon comes to the throne and then his son comes to the throne and they say, the weight is too heavy. Please give us mercy. And they cry out for mercy and they don't get it. Because the king that they have asked for is not the king that God would have them have. They ask for it in the wrong motives. The truth is that every earthly king or everything you put on the throne of your life, other than God himself, will take from you. It will take from you. 
In the short term, it might look like it's giving something to you, but in the long run, when you look at the big picture, every other thing that you put on the throne of your life will take from you because it needs your energy, it needs your resources, it needs your money. That's the only way it can survive. Whether it's a position that you've got to give your time, effort, and energy to, whether it's a possession that you've got to watch over and protect, whether it's a relationship, you will have to, it will take from you. It may give something back, but eternally, in the long run, it cannot give. It will take if you put that on the throne of your life to be worshiped. See, here's the thing. As we come around this communion table to close our service, God is the only king that can give without taking. God is the only king that is all-powerful, that has all the resources, that doesn't need anything from you or me, and he can give without taking. He can give to you and he can rule and reign without taking from you. Why serve God as king? Because lesser kings are always on the take and God's always on the give. Lesser kings in your life and in my life are always on the take. They're always looking for what they can take from you. But God is the only one who can serve as king and give. He is the only one who can give and not be depleted. He is the only one who can give of his resources and lose nothing of himself. Scriptures that speak to it, and they say, why? You know, when people would try and give their offerings, but they weren't giving them with the right heart, and God would say, do you think I need your money? I don't need your money. I want your heart. The way you give and the when you give money, all that is is evidence of your heart. So God is the one who can give without taking. So the scriptures about giving. Let's look at some of those. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Let me just rattle them off quickly. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Contrast this to the king that Samuel speaks of, who takes from them. God says, I'll give you rest. You could come to this king and he'll give you rest. Next scripture, Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the true king. Next scripture, Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a father that gives good gifts to his children. Next scripture, Romans 2, 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. He's the God that gives eternal life to us, life in heaven. He's the God that gives life and life to the full. Romans 8, 31 to 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously Give us all things. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if he didn't hold back the most valuable thing that he had, that is himself, his son, if he didn't hold that back, why do you think he's going to hold anything other good thing back from you? We get so caught up in the short term. God, give me this, give me this. I want it, I want it. And God's saying, that's not good for you in the long run. You want it 
but if you get what you want, it's not really what you want. Don't you think I have every good gift prepared for you? I didn't hold back my son from you. Will I hold back any other good gift? Next scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one. He's talking about spiritual gifts. He gives to his church just as he determines. 1 Timothy 6, 13. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, he can give and not lose life in himself. James 1, 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to, to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. If you lack wisdom... You need insight. God says, come and ask me and I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Because he's the God who gives and doesn't take. Next scripture, John 3, 16, of course. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He's the God who gives. He gave everything. God says, I I held nothing back. Your sin put a barrier between you and I, God's saying. But I gave my son, died on that cross so that you can have forgiveness. There's nothing that's been held back from you. This is the difference between the little kings that we sometimes serve and the king of the universe. All those other kings of this world that we might put on the throne of our life, all those other things we might try and live for will always be on the take. Whereas God says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you good gifts. I'll give you eternal life. Is there anything good that I have held back from you, God says. So as we come around this communion table This morning, we come to remember the God who gives. We come to remember the king who doesn't take but gives. Even when we give to him, the Bible just time after time after time shows how he gives so much more back to us than we could ever give. So God invites us to come and to worship him. Would you pray with me as we gather around this table this morning? I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we prepare to come around this communion table. One of the things the Bible encourages us to do as we come to communion is to examine our hearts, to examine where we are in relation to God and in relation to one another. And as we do that this morning, in light of the word that we've looked at this morning, in light of the word preached and God's word to us this morning, I just want to encourage you to examine your heart right where you are. And in light of this question, are there any lesser kings that are sitting on the throne in your life? Is there anything in your life that you are living for other than God? Is there anything in life that you are putting ultimate meaning and ultimate hope in other than God Almighty? Has there been anything that you have, even this week, worshipped more than God? You've given more of yourself to it. You've given more of your heart. You've given more 
of your life to it than you have given to the Lord. I encourage you in this moment to get right with God, to take this moment to affirm, God, you are the king that I desire to serve. Would you free me of serving all of these lesser kings? Would you forgive me for serving the lesser kings in my life and help me to serve you and you alone? God, search our hearts today. Help us to see as you see. Father, there are things within us that because it's sometimes hard to serve a God we cannot see, and Lord, sometimes we try and take the easy road out. Lord, would you help us to live for you? Would you help us to be holy, distinct, different? You help us to live by faith and not by sight. Would you help us to learn what it means to live with our treasures being laid up in heaven instead of treasures of this earth that will be gone? Lord, help us to live in that way. Remind us of that as we come around this table today. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive communion for